uh, this morning we're going to be talking about the sufficiency of Scripture. It's a topic that's been on the hearts of the elders lately. Um, sufficiency of Scripture is something that is uh, so very important in this life to understand. Uh, and, and the elders have been um, feeling convicted that we need to be learning more about that. And so I have a feeling there's going to be a sermon series coming up in the near future once Phil is done with the attributes on the sufficiency of Scripture. Um, so I, I guess I'd open the, open the class with this. We talk about the sufficiency of Scripture. It's a phrase you've probably all heard a thousand times before, that Scripture is sufficient, at least for something. So what do we mean when we're talking about the sufficiency of Scripture? It's given us everything we need to live a godly life. It's given us everything we need to live a godly life. That almost sounds like a Bible verse. It is a Bible verse, yes. Yes, it's given us everything that we need. Second Peter one, for everything that we need. Specifically, it says Second Peter one is divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. And that knowledge is is referring to knowledge of Him. And where does that knowledge come from? It comes from the Word of God, right? So I think I think. Don hit it right on the head. The sufficiency of Scripture means, specifically, refer, is referring to the, the fact that Scripture has everything. It's sufficient for us to live a life of godliness. Right. It doesn't contain everything that has to do with God. It's, it's not an encyclopedia. No. It won't tell me how to change the oil in my car. But I do think it tells me a lot about the changing of oil in my car. I can I can use Scripture in the application of of changing oil in my car, the principles uh, from Scripture, in order to honor God, glorify God in the process of changing the oil in my car. So, and then we'll talk some more about that a little bit later. Um, what are some passages that talk about sufficiency of Scripture? Second Timothy three sixteen. What does it say? 16 and 17. Can you read that for us? And all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for the training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. Yes, thank you. So there's some absolute statements there. All of scripture, all of it, right? As, as we know in the canons that we have, the 66 books of the Bible, all of scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for training, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be what? Complete. Equipped for what? Every good work. So we have some absolute statements there. Scripture is what we need for edification, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. God's Word is exactly what we need to be equipped for every good work. Every good work. What other verses can you think of? What passages can you think of? There was Second Peter one verse three. Yeah. No, it's Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen. Thank you, Josh. What other passages can you think of? What about Psalm nineteen verses seven through twelve? The law of the Lord, and that's referring in this case to the Pentateuch. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord, which is what we get in God's word, is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. 
The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. So it's precious. The word of God is precious. Even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Ever thought about how sweet the word of God is? It's a sweet... It, Moreover, verse 11, by them is your servant warned. So there's admonition in the word. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. So the Lord, the word, word of the Lord is sufficient. It is sweet. It is, it makes wise the simple. It's, it's good for reproof, for training in righteousness. <clears throat> right, Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I remember Dr. Foltz talking about that verse uh, on a Sunday evening worship service one time. I don't know if you guys remember that, those of you that were there, talking about what that means to divide like that, to divide joints and marrow and how, how very exacting that is and how very precise you have to be to be able to do that. Psalm 1, verse 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. You'll be blessed if you meditate on the word of God, on the law of God. We hold dearly to God's word in this church, and I appreciate that about this church a lot. So that when we and we hold dearly to the doctrine of sufficiency, we're going to explore that in the next over the next few weeks, Lord willing. And here's what our philosophy of ministry states about the sufficiency of Scripture and our attitude towards Scripture. It says this quote. Above and beyond everything as the source and supreme authority, the only authority is God's Word, as revealed in the 66 books that make up our Bible. Having a high view of God and His Word is the greatest need of the church. And a church or individual will be spiritually strong or weak in proportion to His view. So our spiritual health as a church and individually depends upon our view of Scripture. How we weigh Scripture, how we esteem Scripture and everything that's in it. So the philosophy of ministry continues. The Word of God in the original is inspired, infallible, inerrant, sufficient, and authoritative for all of life. There is no need to turn to secular men to solve man's spiritual problems. It is God's whole counsel in Scripture, rightly understood, which has the power over sin. Hebrews 4.12, Romans 1.16, rather than the counsel of the ungodly, which we should avoid. Psalm 1, verse 1. And again, you'll find this in the church philosophy statement. We believe a truly biblical counseling model seeks to meet man's spiritual needs by God's all-sufficient word, rather than integrating psychology or psychiatry to solve man's sin problems. Ministry begins with those who tremble at God's word. Isaiah 66, verse 2 who reverence it, cherish it, submit to it, interpret it carefully and prayerfully, accurately handle it, apply it, protect it, and pass on its truth to others. So we place a, a, a value on Scripture that, that's representative of our trust in, in Scripture as God's inspired Word. 
We don't worship Scripture. We don't venerate Scripture. But we believe it to be God's very spoken word. And so we hold it with the respect that it deserves, right? Peter tells us, 2 Peter 1, that Scripture is more reliable than even the most amazing spiritual experiences. You hear a lot in in life, and we'll talk about it a little bit later, about how people hold fast to a, a teaching of Scripture until their life experience contradicts it. And then you'll see them divert away from God's Word and, 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 and follow their heart, which, is, which goes down the road of their life experience, rather than adhering to what God teaches. Peter writes, 2 Peter 1.19, We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. God's Word instructs us how to live, what to believe, and what God expects of us. It's good for teaching. 2 Timothy 3.16 God's Word instructs and admonishes us. There's the reproof. It shows us how we have deviated from doctrine or practice. Hebrews 4.12 It corrects us. It doesn't just show us where we've gone wrong. It also shows us the right way. And it also trains us in righteousness. It shows us how to put its teachings into practice on a daily basis. This is the Word of God that we we value higher than almost anything else. Certainly not higher than God Himself, but we value the Word of God. We esteem it. We believe that God's inspired Scripture is sufficient for all of life and godliness. And that it's authoritative over our lives. Again, Scripture, the very Word of God that we have this morning, is inspired. The writers themselves were not inspired. The words were inspired. Breathed out by the Holy Spirit. Scripture is inerrant. There are no mistakes in the original manuscripts. And these are all, these are all words that we could spend weeks studying in and of themselves, but we're going to gloss over them. Scripture is infallible. It's not just that there are no mistakes in Scripture in its original manuscripts, we also believe that there cannot possibly be any mistakes in Scripture. It's not just that there are no mistakes, but there cannot be any mistakes in Scripture. It's an important distinction. It's sufficient. And that's the element we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks. And it's authoritative. What do we mean by by Scripture being authoritative? It suggests complete truth, and it's not fair to describe a word with itself. But the <laughs> author surely is authoritative. Authoritative. What, what does that mean? Authoritative. That's reliable. And we can. It's reliable, and we can. And we can cite it. Certainly, authoritative means a little more though than that. It requires obedience. It holds authority over our lives. There we go. Mr. Myers tells me not to not to use the word to define it. I'm always telling my kids not to use the word to define it. But the reality is it holds authority over our lives. And we are called to be obedient to it. Right? We do as it commands because it is God's very word breathed out. There's nothing higher. There's nothing higher than that. That is the highest. It is the highest ultimate authority that we have. And so when we are presented by the government telling us that we're no longer allowed to worship together inside because of the COVID, for example. We look to God's Word. What does God's Word say? God's Word tells us 
this, the government tells us this, we submit to what God's word tells us to do. Even though it might cause some road bumps, it might be difficult, it might cause some challenges, we submit to what God's word calls us to. God's word is the supreme authority. And he's given us the Bible by divine inspiration. Because of that, then, the word has the right to prescribe the beliefs and actions of of believers, right? Since Scripture claims to be the word of God, and God is authoritative, Scripture, therefore, is authoritative. Does that make sense? Scripture claims to be the word of God. God is authoritative. Therefore, Scripture is authoritative. And, and I'm, I'm driving that point home because it's it's insufficient to claim that God's word is sufficient, but then deny its authority. It doesn't it it, it doesn't have any value to us, right? If, if it means nothing for Scripture to be sufficient for all of life and godliness, if we do not hold dear to the doctrine of its authority over us, over our lives. See, a little bit deeper than that, I almost think we need to think that. Not only the authority over us, but it's what's best for us. It's what absolutely. We have to understand is God wants what's best for us. He's not going to keep us for things that are best. What's best for us? Yeah, you're right. Scripture is best for us. God, God doesn't have anything for us that is not best for us. Even his, even his, his discipline is best for us, right? I think too, it's the final word. We don't need anything added to it. Absolutely, it is. It's, it's sufficient. It's complete. It's complete. There is nothing to need. Nothing needs to be added. It's exactly what we need. It's the end of the line. It's the end of the line. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Everything that happens, we try to believe we have to measure by the word of God. Amen. Do you remember as we talked about believers? The entire creation is under the authority of the church. Yes. Yep. So we are saved, and we are held to that authority. Yes. The world, the world, for those of you who couldn't hear, the world is, is also under the authority of, of, of God's word. They may not adhere to it. They may not subscribe to it. They not, may not believe it. doesn't matter. It's, they're still under the authority of God's word. And they will, they, God's word tells us what, what will happen to them if they don't repent and trust in him, right? So what? It's proved itself to be accurate. Um, archaeology uses mm-hmm. the Bible. It's historically had no errors. The fact that I think we talked about it early on in this class, when we talked about the Bible, that it's, yes, it's not one book, it's 66 books. It's yep. written over 1,500 years on three different continents by three different uh, three different languages, and yet it doesn't have any of those contradictions, which makes it supernatural just in that. You cannot take another collection of books written over that period uh, three continents, three different languages, and have have the, the harmony that, that the gospel has. So it's another way of God just proving that mm-hmm. this is my word, just like I created this universe, and it's it's all for His glory. That's a great reminder. I I I I could write something in the morning, and and write something in the afternoon, and completely contradict myself. And, and, and sincerely believe both statements. But as you said, the Word of God was written over 1,500 years, 66 books, m- n- numerous authors, 40, 40 authors, thank you. And yet, there's a harmony in Scripture that, that, is, that is second to none, that, that, that could not possibly be achieved through human means. And to build on that, um, if they took all the documents to verify with... Um, uh, you know, scripture. All 
manuscripts would be, if they would stack them on top of each other, it would be a mile high of what they have. And the next one is four feet. Four feet. The next ancient document. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the whole discipline of, of uh, what's the discipline called? Uh, of, of, of studying the, the, you know, putting the books together and, and looking at the uh, textual criticism. Thank you. Just, just fascinating. It's beyond the scope of, of, of me this morning, <laughs> but it, it's a fascinating, fascinating study. So, in what areas is scripture sufficient? Is it sufficient when I pay my PG&E bill? Can I use scripture to pay my PG&E bill? Yeah. Yeah. Your next ten questions. Yes. What's that? I said I didn't hear that. No, I, I was asking what in what areas scripture is sufficient, and and his answer regarding the PG and E bill, and he said yes, of course, and and then Don helpfully said yes to the next ten questions because he knows what's coming. What about what about my guest the gas station I choose to fill up at? Is can I use scripture for that? Yeah, like don't let the sun go down on your anger. <laughs> <laughs> don't, judge. don't judge people. Don't judge. Forgive. What about submission to government? Can I use scripture for that? Yes. What about regular life events? What am I going to do this weekend? Can I use scripture to inform myself? Of course we can, right? What about counseling, therapy? We can use scripture for that, right? So we have this confession that scripture is sufficient, right? I, I think if, if I asked every, everybody in the room to raise their hand, I'm not going to ask you to do it, but, but if I did... Raise your hand if you believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. I have no doubt whatsoever that every person in this room would raise their hand. We believe that to be true. This, that's why you're in this church, or a reason you're here, is because we believe that as a, as a corporate body, as a church, we believe that Scripture is sufficient. Individually, we believe that Scripture is, is sufficient. But I, I wonder if there's a chink in our armor of sufficiency. I do wonder um, if our confession and our practice don't always align with each other. We say that Scripture is sufficient, that it's enough, but, but we sometimes maybe tack on a caveat onto that statement. We don't mean to doubt the veracity of, of the doctrine, but our practice may not reflect otherwise. Perhaps it's sufficient for this area of my life, but it's, it's not sufficient to inform me about something else over here. But I don't think the Bible makes that distinction, and, and uh, I'm not throwing any anyone under the bus with that statement. It, it, I live my life in this real world. I struggle with things just like everybody else does. Life is hard. Life has trials. It has temptations. It has struggles. It has, it has suffering. And, and we can't help but wonder and start to ask questions when we're going through difficult times, right? And so I, I'm not suggesting that, that we're somehow... Well... Our, our life and our, our practice and our and our and our confession, we need to work on that being in alignment. That's why we're thinking about that this morning. And that's our worldview, isn't it? So, our, to have a complete Christian worldview, you do have to understand the sufficiency of Scripture. Even so, I think, I think it takes a lifetime to apply a lot of that mm-hmm. because there's so many, like you say, caveats in our life that. We have decisions we have to make every day, hundreds upon hundreds. And there are there are believers in Christ that struggle with even a Christian worldview. Sure. It's like they compartmentalize different things and don't put it all together. And that's why you really do have to immerse yourself in God's Word and rely on His Spirit. Because it's 
people are. We, we're contradictory in some of our belief systems in the way we approach life. We are. In practice, we are. It's, it's, it's almost like thinking about the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign. We all believe that to be so. But when God brings suffering into our lives, we do have a tendency, like Job, to start asking questions. To even, even dare I say it, start doubting a little bit. And, and, and that's just the human, fallen human nature. It, it is what it is. It's good to be ready for those things so that when, when, the, when the hard times come, we're ready for them. And we have a doctrine in place that's, that is as founded and secure and anchored as it can be. Yes, sir? Yeah, I know you hit on it there. I was thinking of the context, but the issue of sovereignty, uh, sufficiency of sovereignty, too. And we say we believe it, yes, and we, yes, we do. But we have faith in what we believe in the sovereignty and the sufficiency of Scripture. In other words, we believe it is there until something strong comes against it. And we have the faith to say, yes, this is something is strong, and we have to do this, but the Scripture says this, so we do what Scripture says, even against why really, I know what Scripture says, but I really feel God has called me to do this. It can be contradictory. I guess we can say we believe in these things, and we do, but we have faith in the bottom line. Yeah. Something comes against it that is strong. Uh, I could give a dozen illustrations, but I won't take time for now. We have faith in it. Yeah, I mean, if you've ever been on a long road trip and, and you're exhausted, it's 3 o'clock in the morning, and, and, and there's nobody out on the road, you're on a long, desolate stretch of freeway, and, and, and all you can do is white-knuckle cling to that steering wheel and pray that you, that you stay on the road, you know? Or, or you're, you're, you're climbing a, a rock face. And, and uh, Caleb looks like he does it every day. And, and, and so you're climbing that rock face. Sorry, Caleb. And, and, and you're just white knuckle clinging because you know that's where your security is. But sometimes you just got to cling, cling to it and, and, and just pray that you're, and, and, and you're along for the ride. But the reality is, where's your faith? How strong is your faith? And is it founded and secure when these things come up? And I, I, I'm getting ahead of myself, but there's, you see these stories all the time. I, I can remember the story of a pastor who was, reasonably high profile who preached against homosexuality his whole his whole ministry until his son came out as is homosexual as gay and and when his son came out as gay suddenly the pastor's profession changed suddenly because he couldn't reconcile in his brain i guess that his the, his admonitions against a sin with his son being in that sin he he his 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 doctrine or his his uh, trust in the veracity of scripture changed and, and his understanding of Scripture changed, and 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 that's 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 not what we want. We want to be we want to be in God's Word, clinging to God's Word, and trusting that as our ultimate authority, and in our and our ultimate bottom line. So that if if an event comes along that contradicts Scripture, we know where we're going to anchor ourselves. Right? We know where we're going to put our trust. We're not going to put our trust in the event or the experience. We're going to put our trust in in Scripture. We believe, as Second Peter one three says, that Scripture is truly sufficient for all of life and godliness. Therefore, Scripture and, and Scripture alone is sufficient, is enough for life, for godliness, for discipleship, for counseling, for soul care. The term biblical counseling, by the way, is just a fancy word for discipleship, really. And and we should all be engaged in this, in discipleship, right? Jesus' last words, Matthew 20, go and do what? Make disciples. That's, that's our calling is, is, is clear. If you're ever wondering what God's plan is for your life, you can trust that it involves, if you're a believer in Christ, that it involves salvation, it involves repentance, it involves going out and making disciples. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. 
And so we should all be studying these disciplines of counseling and soul care because those are the things that are that we're called to as a part of discipleship. So we're going to spend some time over the next few weeks digging, digging a little more into this idea of scriptural sufficiency. So back in the, in the late 1960s, we're going to have a history lesson. It's going to be fun, I promise. We're going to, we're going to talk about guys like Schleiermacher, whose name, I just, if I could have another name, that would be it. I just love the name Schleiermacher. <laughs> so back in the late 1960s, a man with a simpler name, Jay Adams, is probably the forefather of biblical counseling today, sparked a debate over the sufficiency of Scripture for biblical counseling. He dared to state... Quote, the task of counseling is a theological enterprise that should be primarily informed by a commitment to God's word. And that caused an outrage and just a scuttle of, of, of people who are upset. It was radical at the time. As we'll see, that the practice of counseling had moved from the pastor's office to the licensed clinician's office. We'll talk more about that. The irony being the forefathers of psychotherapy, Freud and Jung, those guys also believed that counseling belonged in the pastor's office. Oddly enough, they're, they're ranked pagans, they hate God, and yet they believe that the practice of counseling was a pastoral practice. Kind of interesting, we'll talk more about that. The reality is most Christian counseling organizations do not subscribe to Adam's confidence in Scripture. They do not believe that the Bible is a sufficient source of wisdom for all of life and godliness. Now that's shocking. That's shocking. So there are three general categories within the, within the discipline of counseling. There's secular psychology. The Bible's irrelevant, completely irrelevant to counseling. That would include psychiatry, psychotherapy, clinical therapy. Second is biblical counseling. The Bible's sufficient for counseling. The Bible is all we need for soul care, discipleship. And then the third is this Christian integrationism. They generally state that the Bible is relevant for counseling, but it's insufficient for it. It's relevant, but insufficient. Their position is that the Bible isn't enough. We need more than just Scripture. It needs to be supplemented with psychology, with worldly or more worldly-oriented disciplines in order to fully understand um, the, the, the soul. Now, we're not talking about medical issues. So make that clear from the outset. So you take something like uh, a, a deep depression. There, there, is, there is no doubt. There's the inner man, there's an outer man. There's no doubt that when somebody's depressed, there are physiological things going on. Not suggesting that depression is caused by biology, but, de- but depression as a, as, a, as a soul care issue can cause physical problems. And physical problems can lead to depression. If you're in constant pain, you're going to start going down the road of, of, of depression. Long-term chronic pain will, will cause that. And, that, and that's and that's understandable. It doesn't mean that there's a, bio, a neurological issue that's causing the depression, but there are there are relationships here, and so we understand that from the outset. We understand that there's there there are interrelations between the body and the mind, the body and the soul. We get that. You mean that, that doesn't sound right. What's that? That we can't help. No, nope, that's not what I said, or it's not what I meant. What I'm saying is, is, is a physical ailment can can lead lead the person down the road of becoming depressed. That's all I'm saying. 
Doesn't mean it has to. Doesn't mean it will. But it can. Yes. Thank you, yeah. And it might help to define depression, because clinical depression is different than discouragement. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of life where it is appropriate to be slower and serious. You've had losses, but there's, but you can't, you are expected as a Christian to continue to walk. Yes. Amen. Defining it's huge. Yep, yep. And and that's not what the class is about. We're not talking about, all all I'm saying is, is we can, the, the biology can lead to soul care issues, emotional problems, if you will. It, just like emotional problems, soul care issues can lead to biological issues. They, they both, it's an interrelation that goes both directions. That's all. And sometimes they do have to intervene. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Sometimes medical medical intervention is appropriate. Absolutely. My brother is a clinical psychologist and he's got his PhD and he falls into the camp of totally, you know, nothing to do with God. Right. Yeah. Sorry to hear that. And I'm in the other camp. <laughs> fun, fun family conversations at Christmas time. <laughs> so let's talk about, let's talk about, we'll come up with a fictitious name. Let's talk about Sarah. Sarah's a fictitious name, right? We'll personalize it a little bit. Sarah's, Sarah's recently lapsed into a deep depression. One that has been rec- a recurring theme throughout her late teen and adult life. She's seeking counseling. Sarah believes in the sovereignty of God with all her heart and the sufficiency of Scripture for matters pertaining to her spiritual life. But she also believes that the church cannot offer what she needs for what she calls her deeper psychological issues. And so like many in the church today, she turns to a a clinical therapist, a a counselor, a, a secular counselor, a psychiatrist for help. So we're going to talk a little bit about Sarah in amongst the rest of what we're going to talk about in the class. That, that happens a lot today. Either Sarah will go to her pastor for help and he'll refer her to a professional counselor, quote unquote, or she won't even stop in the pastor's office. She'll go straight to a professional clinician and, and, and sidestep the church altogether. Why do you think Sarah would, uh, and, and for the sake of our scenario, let's, she's unquestionably a believer in Christ. Let's, let's start with that. Why do you think a believer in Christ would sidestep the pastor's office and go straight to a professional, quote-unquote, clinician, a therapist, a psychiatrist for help? What are some reasons that Sarah might do that? They were taught that. She was taught that from the very beginning. Absolutely. She, she was led, she was taught to believe by her parents, by the education system, that there's a professional over here who can help her with her, with her emotional issues. Absolutely. She was taught that. She doesn't want to be condemned by him, whether it's a or We're good at that, aren't we? We are so good at being judgmental. We're so good at being critical and, and, and we have done a great job, tongue in cheek, of stigmatizing mental health issues. Right, and, and that's, that's that's you would think that the church would be the one safe place that you could go where you would be safe, right? But but we're not always the case. It's not always the case. You're right. 
that person may not have a relationship with that pastor. Mm-hmm. Um, there may be a personality conflict and feel judged. Um, or the pastor may not feel really confident in dealing with this really deep-seated issue and may may even think that somebody else in the ministry may be more qualified. Yeah. Even in even in good seminaries, pastors are not well trained in the issue of, of soul care of, of counseling, and so a lot of them, unless they have a natural God given gift toward that ministry, a lot of them are not well equipped to do that. Did I see a hand over here? Whether, whether real or imagined feelings of why I might feel judged or personalities right. may be off, that, that might be a real thing. It might just be an imagined thing. Even just the first step of Christians caring for one another, right? Because a pastor is maybe just one or two people in a church, but there's a whole congregation of 300 people who, who could very well minister to that person in need, but they, you said maybe not a relationship with that pastor. Maybe they don't have any meaningful spiritual relationships with other Christians. Mm-hmm. Based on people who are speaking truth in their life and encouraging them. Yeah. Uh, it's, 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 it's yeah. A lot of it has to do with personal responsibility. If you go to the pastor, most likely they're going to be taught or, or, or counseled in the way of your, you know, your accountability and, and to God versus the secular uh, world, if you will, is teaching this touchy-feely stuff that is somebody else's fault. So in order to avoid the accountability, we're going to the secular side because we're liking what we're hearing. Right. It's not my responsibility or partially anyway. It's somebody else's fault. Yeah. I think, taking on what Justin, basically at some point you have to deny this to the scripture. I do not, you have to in order to say I'm going somewhere else for advice. So the, to me it's always a spiritual problem. And, and so the, the cure is the spiritual cure. You have to, you have to come to scripture. I think that I'm not discounting any benefit from counselors, but, but if the soul care, this is where you get soul care out of scripture. Amen. No other place has, has, has soul care than, than the word of God. Ultimately, that, that's what have done. And almost all times of depression, I'm depressed by this because when I turn away, not towards God, and let my issues become bigger than, than God, that, that, that was my problem. I had to repent of that in order to, you know, just kind of like... Yeah. Thank you for bringing it back to the sufficiency of Scripture, of God's Word. It does have, it does have the answers to our soul care issues. No, when we're emotionally... <clears throat> Um, a place where we just want to get fixed. You go to the doctor to get well, right? Mm-hmm. We, with long-term depression or emotional issues like that, it may be a lifetime. And where do I end up every week? I end up in church every week. I don't end up at my doctor's office every week. Yeah. And I think that um, you know the encouragement of others who are struggling with those issues, you don't feel like going to church with us because that's where the soul is cared for. Or you can go to the doctor maybe, you know, three times a year and get a refill on medication. But the soul care will happen. Yeah. Amen. And and I'm not I, I'm not and this is this class isn't about medication. It's not about any of that stuff. And, and I'm I'm not throwing stones at anybody. 
with regards to medication. Sometimes it's sometimes we need to do what we need to do to function, and I understand that. I also um, I I totally understand if you're if, if the fog is so dark you can't lift your limbs up to get out of bed because of of the depths of your pain, and somebody comes along and says, "Here's a little pill, and this will make you feel better." I, I get it. I understand. I get it. It's it's a it's it's a it's a it's a physical emblem of hope that that you can take and 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 you have this hope that now you can be you can be better and, and I and I understand that I get it I'm not I understand that too but for me that is taking a, a quick fix to mask the problem it's not dealing with the underneath problem and that's the problem that's the issue you're putting a bandaid on an issue and, and you're not fixing the the bleed you're not stopping the bleed I, yeah so. But like you said, if that person is in such a dark place, they may, because, you know, we've been through some of the biblical counseling training and the doctor that spoke there, she's a psychiatrist. She believes in the total sufficiency of scripture, but she said she's had cases, including herself, where she was so, no, it doesn't, but it just, it's just like a little boost to get in a place where you can deal with those deep seated issues. And some brilliant theologians through the centuries suffered with deep depression mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it wasn't because they were not men of God. Right. We, we quickly throw out the sin issue. Why? Why You're in sin, therefore you're struggling. Right. But what, what did Jesus say about that? When, when his disciples asked him, who sinned that this guy was blind? Well, yeah. he didn't yeah. sin. it's not a sin issue. No. This, is a, this was an object lesson issue. It wasn't, said Jesus, John 9, 3, that, that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So there, there's, God has a sovereign, sovereign plan for our lives that can be worked out in and through our lives, right? And so all the more reason for us to be in community together here in church on Sunday, sharing our, our, our trials. I, I know of somebody who had a really unusual mental health issue and... I thought nobody could possibly understand this. Nobody could possibly. This is the, frankly, in my mind, the strangest thing I'd ever heard of. Nobody could possibly get it. Guess what? There are other people that in the church who got it, who understood that had been through this. They walked the same walk. That had been through the same thing. They were still in that same issue, and they were able to identify, and they could identify with that, and and be a help, contribute to to the healing of that person in that in that trial, in that suffering. What a, what a blessing that is. What. a what a blessing God's church is. It may be the case that there's sin involved. In fact, there almost always is. It's sin involved somewhere in, in the process when we're dealing with, with mental health issues. But it's not always the case. And, and regardless, even if it is a sin issue, we're commanded in Scripture to encourage the faint-hearted, to, to help the weak, and to be patient with them all. Right? Being in sin should be the first reason we seek out pastoral care, not the last reason. But the reality is this. Christians are leaving the church in search of professional counseling as pastoral soul care has shifted from the pastor's office to the licensed clinician's office. We're blessed in this church with some pastors and elders who are particularly gifted in the area of counseling. Any one of them may not be your particular, you know, may not resonate for you as a, in a relationship sense or a personality sense. But we have some marvelous resource, resources in this church that God has given us. Did I see a hand over here? Oh, yeah. I was just um, talking to Corey about something similar this morning. And how, um, a 
conventional outside of the church, you don't know their lifestyle, right. and you don't know if they live a wise or godly lifestyle, and that's another huge benefit of going to biblical counseling in the church, is you, first and foremost, elders are held accountable for the Lord, and you're saying that too, and so that's a big part of their counseling to you, is they're going to stand before the Lord one day, and give account to that, um, but then other Christians in the church, you can see their lifestyle, so yep. they live wisely, where professional they might be contradicting everything they're telling you to do and so that's you never know yeah i ask the question to the, to the class it, is it not true that when you're looking outside of scripture for help you're saying i'm willing to put more faith in something other than scripture for my condition i think that really is the case i'm I, i'm going to put more faith in a pharmacological treatment and the word of God to help me. I think that's a theological issue. I think that we always need to go back to the word. Yes, and more people uncomfortable counseling people than find something that's that's part of what the body does. We, we, we love people to this reason some we don't condemn them, but we're there on your side reminding them of scripture and praying with them. And I, that's really going to be the Amen. And, and I, I would maintain that if we spent more time in the Word, in study, and in, in prayer together as a body, individually, in small groups, I think a lot of our soul care issues would evaporate, um, frankly, um, if we spent more time doing that. So, not just. You would find an avenue for care. Mm, right. And, uh, same thing, if I may want to say. Uh, some of it, too, is it's not, not Sarah's fault. It's some of it she may be receiving outside because she hasn't been told sure. that she shouldn't. And I've been, I've been asked to counsel people outside the church. Sue and I were in asked to do their premarital counseling for people outside the church. And uh, the church that they were going to, big church, I know the pastor of the seminary with it, and they said, yeah, but they did not offer Yeah. It wasn't even a thought that they should go to their pastor because the church wasn't going to Yeah. And, and so this is a problem that we have, at least in part, created for ourselves. Right? I think the suspicion amongst our brothers and sisters is that Scripture is sufficient for minor problems, for spiritual problems, and they, and they define that very limit in a very limited way, but it's not enough to resolve the serious problems of life. The resources God provides in His Word are simply insufficient, they argue, to minister to people with major difficulties. Scripture can address matters of faith and practice, it fails to help us understand and resolve the spiritual problems of life. And so we need the insights of psychology to understand and to help people. Or the insights of some other source. Put bluntly, they believe the Bible is fundamentally deficient for serious soul care issues. That's a problem. Wayne Mack writes this, For many Christians, the Bible has titular rather than functional authority in the area of counseling. It's been given a title of respect and name, titular respect, but no functional authority. It's not respected for its ability to answer life's difficult problems. So, how do we get here? How do we get here? How do we get where? To the point where we don't truly trust in Scripture for all of life and godliness. Good question. Thank you. We should, I think, we've looked at some scriptures that, that, that tell us about scripture being sufficient, right? We should be able to look to scripture and, 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 and document and show that we can rely on God's word for all elements of life. Even my daughter learning to drive can be informed by 
God's Word. And my many emotional responses to her learning to drive can be informed by God's Word. As I'm praying and crying in the seat next to her. Don't tell her I said that. Second Timothy 3.15, all Scripture is profitable. We read, read that for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that we might be equipped for every good work. Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active. Second Peter 1.3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All right, so the earliest Greek philosophers built their foundation on religion and tradition. Everything pointed back to God or to gods. But around 600 B.C., they began to set aside their established basis for understanding the world and turn to their own intellectual autonomy and reason, believing that their minds were capable, unassisted, of fundamentally understanding the world. That was my grandfather in a nutshell. My grandfather was a world-renowned uh, physicist. Oppenheimer asked him to work on the atom bomb with him during World War II. The guy was just out of this world brilliant. And he believed that the highest thing, the highest possible thing was the human mind. And the human mind was the ultimate. And, and nothing could, could surpass the, the human mind and the ability to independently and autonomously reason. And so these Greek philosophers came to believe that they could understand the world unaided through the power of their prodigious brains alone. And so ancient philosophers, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, they came to view the world primarily or even exclusively through the eyes of personal experience. That's a trump card, isn't it, it seems, in, this, in, in today's culture, isn't it? Personal experience. We see it with sin issues. I mentioned the pastor who changes his position theologically on homosexuality because his son comes out as gay. That happens. Perhaps it was too painful for him to continue his belief that homosexuality was sin. Perhaps it caused a rift in the family, a rift in the family, and and, and he had to reconcile those things. And his son wasn't going to change. He was he was stuck down going down that road, and so the pastor had to change his position. I don't know, but the reality is they twist Scripture to endorse a lifestyle that isn't biblical. We see that a lot. Personal experience trumping Scripture. So then we jump from the Greek philosophers into the late into the 1600s through the 1800s. And we see this new wave of philosophers come onto the world stage. And these are the so-called Enlightenment philosophers. What do we know about the Enlightenment? There wasn't much light about it, I don't think. What is, what is the Enlightenment? All those French people. <laughs> Any French people in the? No, I'm. I, <laughs> what do we know about the? What do we know about the Enlightenment? I'm a reformed French person. You're a reformed. <laughs> <laughs> the new age of darkness was it yeah. denied ultimate truth and he said it was all the man determined everything. That was not the Enlightenment at all. Just the, uh, just the opposite of light. It was darkness, wasn't it? Absolutely. It's a philosophical movement that dominated especially Europe in the 18th century, centered around the idea that reason is the primary source of authority and legitimacy. Human reason. Prior to the Enlightenment, faith was the lens through which people viewed the world. But philosophers such as Descartes, Kant, and my favorite Schleiermacher doubled down on their efforts to replace faith with autonomous reason alone. He's only my favorite because of his name, not because of his philosophies. 
autonomous reason. It's defined as the idea that we can live our lives independently of external forces. Thinking through and reasoning through all of life issues, every dimension, every angle, independently of external forces, ideas, or religion. It's an attempt to remove religion entirely from, 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 from the landscape. And of course, the predictable outcome of that was what? The traditional values, traditional theology went out the window. Philosopher theologians came to reject the authority of Scripture as the infallible Word of God. That was the Enlightenment. So but what, what you're saying is they believe that human reason is, is their basis for what's right and right wrong. Absolutely. We reason it through intellectually without any, any impairment from the Bible. Here's my question. Um, do, they, do they really believe that this happened through evolutionary processes over millions of years by accident? That we, that we achieved the human brain? Well, that... Yeah, created by God. Well, sure. Can't these these models start to fall apart if you pick too hard, right? Yeah. You know. It's a control issue. It's it's, a, uh, it's the same thing that Austin Lennon uh, promulgated. Yeah. Yeah. A desire to be in control. To control. Yeah. We don't like things being out outside of our own control, right? So, for these Enlightenment philosophers, religion held no authority, no influence, supposedly, in their lives. I mean, I don't know how you would extricate yourself from religion, but that was their claim. And so for the post-enlightenment liberal theologians, Scripture still has no divine authority. So their liberal theology imposed a radically non-Christian worldview on the theology of the church. They subordinated themselves to the demands of this intellectual autonomy. I'm going to think these things through all by myself, and that's going to be the highest and ultimate reason. They could not reconcile Scripture and man's autonomy, and so one of those got tossed out the window. Guess who lost? The Scripture lost. Schleiermacher is considered to be the father of modern liberal theology. Frederick Schleiermacher. He said that the essence of religion is a, quote, feeling of absolute dependence rather than any particular doctrinal conviction. Religion is a feeling of dependence, absolute dependence. It is not any particular doctrinal conviction. For Schleiermacher, religious feelings were paramount, but God's existence was optional. God didn't even need to exist in his theology. So you can see how theology started to take a backseat to reason as, as mankind elevated themselves above God, elevated their own reason above God's edicts. Above God's reason. You can see a problem with that, right? We are fallen sinners. Romans 3.23. We need divine correction. Romans 6.23. But these biblical truths that we hold so dear fell by the wayside as in supposedly enlightened thinkers. The, the very term is insulting, frankly. These enlightened thinkers came to believe in the autonomy of mankind and his ability to reason independently of God. Unrestrained by holy writ, it was believed that man could improve himself, thereby freeing himself from the shackles of religious ignorance. The the, the famous poet-atheist Bertrand Russell wholeheartedly believed that. Here's what he declared. Science can help us get over this craven fear of God in which mankind has lived for so many generations. Thanks, Bertrand. If they really listened, 
I mean, look at the evidence from science, with, from science for a creator. They couldn't say that. No. And from my study of that, what they re- they can look at all the evidence, but the one thing that keeps them from believing as a creator is because they don't want to. Yeah, well, there's there's a prominent uh, evolutionist who said who acknowledged that the that the indications for evolution are are a slim to none, but the alternative is unthinkable. Therefore, they cling to their they cling to their doctrine. One of the Huxley said, because somebody asked him, why do you why do you think these guys clung to evolution so strongly? And he was honest. He said, you know, I think probably. Because of our uh, sexual morality, well, God, God got in the way of our sexual morality. Yeah. That's what he said. Of our sin. Sure. Thank you for that. Did you have a? Yeah. <laughs> so these people became enlightened, which is code for saying that they realized how primitive and useless religion was. Obviously, we believe that not that is not the case, but that was their that was their position. And these philosophers who rejected religion outright, like Immanuel Kant, wanted to find meaning in life and a resolution to life's problems, but they wanted to be free from the constraints of religion. Religious prejudice, supernaturalism, and superstition. They wanted to be rational rather than supernatural in their thinking. And so since the Enlightenment, we've seen some bright stars on the horizon. We, we got the Reformation, for example. But overall, this focus on rationalism has endured to this day. We can think through our problems by ourselves, unaided by any external information. Rationalism, depending on ourselves to make order of and understand the world. So, we're out of time. Um, We're going to talk about bibliocentric reductionism. That'll be a fun phrase for us for next time. (laughs) Let me me read a quote from John Coe. I just want to finish with this. Not, not, Not to throw you all off, but to give you give you something to think about. John Coe is the director of spiritual formation at a very well-recognized Christian university. I'm not going to name the school, but he's a, a very prominent professor at, this, at a particular university and seminary. He argues that the Bible is inadequate to fully understand the world around us. He says that we have adopted a bibliocentric, that is Bible-centered, reductionism of the Christian faith which focuses upon the sufficiency of Scripture at the expense of attending to the fullness of Revelation. We, we those of us who, who, who believe in the sufficiency of Scripture for all of life and godliness, are ignoring all the other things that God has given us. And it's, it has caused us to have a worldview that's insufficient. He goes on and says, this gets even worse, conservative theologians, he says, are defensive and reactive. That's you, my friend, if you believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. Defensive and reactive, retreating from the light of reason, ouch, and natural revelation to the island of faith. We cling desperately, he says, to the illusion of a Bible alone approach to wisdom. That is, that is the thinking that's going on in our seminaries today. How is he going to explain that? Well, we'll, we'll talk. We'll talk about how he tries to explain it later, next time. But, but at the final judgment, he has no expense. His mouth will be stopped, and, and God will, God will, God will have his have his day, right? Thank you. Um, let no one deceive you with empty arguments. For God's wrath is coming to you, disobedient because of these things. Therefore, do not become their partners. 
For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light results in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Hmm. Discerning what is pleasing to the Lord. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what is done by them in secret. Amen. Mm-hmm. With that, will you close us in prayer? Sure. Thank you. Dear Lord, I just thank you for your grace and mercy. And your, your word is sufficient for us. It is what we need to live by. We know that it's, it, if we follow it, we'll be blessed by you. Mm. Uh, and we can bless others also. We need to just expose the untruths of what science is teaching us because it's leading people down the wrong road and taking them away from you. The only way you're going to bless this country and this world is if we return to you because you're the answer to, to all of, of our issues and all of our problems. It's not the human mind. You mm. made me. Um, and your mind is so much better than than it. You hold us all together. Without that, the whole thing would just disappear in smoke. Just help us be um, beacons of light in this world. In your son's name, I pray. Amen. Amen.